Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. So, I'm just going to pick up here with a question which we didn't have time to fit in on the last podcast episode. So this is a question from Dirk in Germany. And he says, Hi Joe, your book and podcast are amazing and I've recommended both many times. Thank you, Dirk. Um, the question is, here we go. I have a question about the positive interrupter. Couldn't a smart dog infer that she is being indirectly rewarded for her inappropriate behavior? Is there some kind of separator to clearly demarcate the reward from the mischief? I look forward to your answer. Many thanks in advance. Stay safe. Kind regards, Derek. So let's just sort of um, explain a little bit about the whole positive interrupter idea because people, some people listening might not know what that is and then they're not going to know what we're talking about. So positive interrupter is, um, well, it's a cue. It's usually a sort of verbal cue. It could be pop, pop. It could be hey, hey. It could be could be anything you want it to be but it's going to be something some noise that you make which is going to get the dog's focus get the dog's attention basically and the idea is that when the dog is doing something that you don't want them to do like um you know if you have a puppy like chewing furniture or uh i don't know getting into something that they're not really supposed to try to get into that you would make this noise and the puppy would stop doing the thing they're doing and then you would mark that you would click that and you would give them a treat so you're basically using this as a way to take their attention off the thing they're engaged with and you probably then would need to go and deal with the thing that they want to investigate because they're likely just to go right back to it if if it stays there but you've you've got a way of um kind of momentarily getting their attention or focus. So that's what the positive interrupter is. And if you want to see a video of it um, in training, in use, there's a great video that Emily Lalum Kiko Pup has on YouTube. So you can just go to YouTube and search for positive interrupter Kiko Pup. That's K-I-K-O-P-U-P. And you'll get a little video up from Emily showing you how to train it. So, so that's what it is. So Derek's question really is about... I think we, I'm going to paraphrase the question. The question really is, it, are chains always made? So it's a question about chaining, basically. So the question is really, if the dog is doing something that we don't want them to do, and we make this noise, which ultimately ends up in a reinforcer for the dog, are we not inadvertently reinforcing the thing that was at the very beginning of the chain, the, the behavior they were doing to begin with, which we didn't want them to do? Are we not actually reinforcing that if we keep 
making a noise and then giving them a treat. So there's a few things to say about this. So firstly, it's, you know, you have to, when you're dealing with any sort of chain, you have to keep an eye on whether a chain is actually being made because sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't when you're working with behavior. When a dog is doing something to earn a reinforcer that you have, then often it's pretty clear that's what they're doing. Think about shaping a dog to go and lie down on a mat, for example. The dog will approach the mat, but there's a sort of awareness the dog is showing of you and of your reinforcers. They're looking at you sometimes. They're showing that that's something that they're interested in. You are part of that whole um, scene with them, as it were. So you'll kind of know if your dog is going to chew a bookshelf because they want you to go pop up and give them a click and a treat because they will approach the bookshelf kind of looking at you like, is this what you want me to do? Almost as if they feel like they're being shaped to go chew the bookshelf, for example. So it'll be pretty clear if your dog is starting to do this in order to earn your positive interrupter noise. And there are things that we can do to prevent the chain from being trained in. So if we can go and deal with the thing itself that they are investigating and remove it or barricade it off or whatever then we are making it less likely this is going to develop into a chain. A chain needs many reps before it begins to be established as a chain. And if we don't let the puppy do those many reps, rep after rep after rep after rep, then hopefully the chain isn't going to develop. And if you're a good trainer, you are not going to stand there while something happens over and over again that you don't want to be happening because clearly that approach isn't working. So you would be intervening and, for example, barricading off your bookshelf or removing whatever it is that the puppy wants to eat or, you know, dealing with the situation so that it can't be practiced again and again and again and again. People give puppies way too much freedom way too early And you don't want to give your puppy all those choices. And there's a few examples of this that I have. So, for example, people who give their puppies run of the whole house rather than confining them to a room uh, behind a stair gate, for example. And a room where you're going to spend a good deal of time as well. You don't want the puppy to be isolated or shut away from you. You want it to be a room where there's going to be a family member in there the vast majority of the time. But it's also a room which is pretty pretty puppy-proofed. That's a difficult thing to say. Pretty puppy-proofed. Um, so there's not really many wrong choices that they could make in that room because you've removed all the wrong choices, leaving only the right choices to be made and strengthened and reinforced and developed. And, you know, there's another thing, another example of that. So in my training classes, sometimes if people come with puppies and they have them on a really long lead and they sort of let the puppy on the end of its long lead go and just leap on the puppy next to them which is a subject unto itself. But let's just think about that in terms of, let's forget about whether the other puppy likes that or whatever. Um, So they're trying to train their puppy and they're standing there with the treats and they're trying to provide the reinforcers in that environment for their puppy. And yet they're letting their puppy go on the end of the long lead to leap all over the puppy next to them. So they're not removing that. They're not taking that off the table as a choice for the puppy in that moment. The puppy could choose to go and jump on the other puppy. And we've got similar examples in gun dog training because we've got, you know, people who try to train dogs which are very distractible without using a long line. So the dog is just going to go and choose to access those other reinforcers instead. So you always want to think about taking the unwanted choices off the table so they are not there as an option and they don't then snowball. If you if they're not possible, then they don't get made as choices and they don't get reinforced self because they're not self-reinforcing because they never were made. And so it just never snowballs. It never becomes a habit. Um, I mean, it's a good, very good example of that. Another one I've just thought of is if you put up a stair gate before you bring your puppy home, so you don't want your puppy to go upstairs 
and you never ever let your puppy through that stair gate and you except if you're carrying the puppy that's one exception i should say so so this still works if you carry the puppy through the stair gate upstairs you just, what you don't want is a puppy finding their own way on their own feet through the stair gate ever 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 so if you manage to do that and you you know all the family are very uh good at preventing the puppy from going through and the puppy will just when they're like two years old, if you remove the stair gate, the puppy will not try to go, or the dog by that age will not try to go through and upstairs. They just will stop at the bottom of the stairs. And some people are amazed when I tell them this and they just don't believe that it's true. And I always tell them, just try it. And But you have to be really, really, you know, on never letting the dog find their own way through the stair gate. Um, And it works. So you'll just have the dog that just stops there as if there's some sort of invisible barrier at that point because they've never gone through. And so what this is, what this says is that if you prevent an unwanted behavior for long enough and a hundred percent of the time, so it's never possible, and then you stop preventing that behavior, you take away that barrier or that long line or that lead or whatever it is, you take it away, then the dog will not try to do that unwanted behavior. It's, they, they just won't. So this is what, when I say prevention to the point of extinction, that's what I mean. That's what prevention to the point of extinction is. So you have to prevent it 100% of the time, pretty much, and you have to prevent it long enough that you've reached extinction. I've kind of waffled a little bit, Dirk, there away from your question about positive interrupters. But um, I think what I'm trying to say is your positive interrupter should be something that you use rarely. If you find that that is something that you're having to do again and again and again, it's likely that there's there's another way to approach this. There's another um, uh, thing to be thinking about here that you're not thinking about um, or that you're not using prevention long enough, effectively enough. So so yeah, that that's basically what I would say about that. And then in terms of it becoming, you know, something that you're inadvertently reinforcing this behavior that you don't want. Well, if it's something that you're that's not being done very often, it's very unlikely to happen. I would say that the vast majority of the time, it's far, far, far more common that the dog is just going back to do something that was self-reinforcing a minute ago because you haven't dealt with the thing out there in the environment that they want to do and the fact that they quite enjoy doing it. So they're going to come to you, get the treat, but then because you're not continuing to preoccupy them, which frankly isn't practical on an ongoing permanent basis, they're going to go back as soon as you stop engaging with them to go check out the thing. So you need to deal with that thing out there. You need to teach the dog how you want your dog to relate to it. Do you want them to ignore it? Do you want them to look at it and look away? Do you want them to walk it heel past it? Um, do you want to, if you have a puppy, for example, at home, blockade off that thing so they don't have access to it? So there's lots of different different options that you have, but you can't just leave that thing out there and expect something different to happen. It's a bit difficult to talk about this in the abstract and without any specific kind of examples of um, whatever it is that we don't want the dog to do. But I hope that helps and gives you some thoughts about positive interrupters. And yeah, do watch Emily Larlam's video on YouTube about it. Hold the line. So next I thought maybe I just talk about our GSP, Ren, and some of the things that we've been through this last year. She's just turned a year old and it's been in some ways quite a difficult year for us with her. So I thought I'd just talk about that a little bit. And a lot of it is about food motivation, which I know is something that other people are also interested in. And a common sort of problem that people have sometimes with some dogs is that they lack food motivation and that can be really challenging. And I now know firsthand how challenging that can be. So 
I thought I'd talk about some of the things that we've tried and what has worked and what hasn't worked and kind of where we are now. So it was apparent retrospectively, even before we brought her home, that she lacked food motivation and had these sort of, um, she was very, she would check out often during training sessions. And before we brought her home, we saw some videos of her with her litter running about and playing. And there was a bowl of food in there for the puppies. And Ren would go and kind of take a mouthful from this food and then run off and do something and run about, play, do puppy stuff. And then she would run back and take another mouthful and then run off again. So there wasn't this sort of sustained eating behavior. So I now think that that was very significant. And if I were looking for a puppy in the future, I would want to make sure that that puppy showed sustained eating behavior, basically. And I know that, you know, some puppies don't and they still end up having great food motivation. But I think if you just want to line everything up to be as sure as possible that your puppy is going to be food motivated, I think this is a key thing to look for. So by that, I mean that the puppy, you know, the food goes down for the puppies, that they really want it. And when it goes down, they eat it and they stay eating it until it's gone, whatever amount of food they've been assigned. So that would be something that I would want to look for, I think, for future. So, so yeah, so with Rem, when she came home, she would sort of do a little bit of training and eat some food as a reinforcer for that training. And then she would just check out and go off around the kitchen and do something else, sniff something. Or sometimes she would kind of um, leap on me and play. It was a bit like, I like doing stuff with you. I like being with you and relating to you. And I want to engage with you and do stuff with you. But I just don't want to eat. So, so it would be, it would be a little bit like, I don't want that, but I want this. And she would leap on you and try to just bite your clothes. Or, you know, if you produced a tuggy, she'd be quite happy to play tuggy instead of eating the food. So I know, by the way, that some of you will find this incredibly hard to imagine if you've got a really food motivated dog, because that would have been me. I would have been like, what? I just can't imagine that. And how do you live with that? And yeah, that is completely what it was like. Let me tell you, it was very stressful. And I just felt like it was this uh, insurmountable difficulty. And it really, in some ways, has been like, for example, uh, if she, still, even now, if she's very distracted by something or very excited, which for Ren doesn't take much to get her very excited, um, <laughs> she will not want to eat food. So if I, for example, take her to our vet to weigh her on the scales, which has to happen quite frequently because she has to have ongoing treatment for her allergies and needs to be weighed so we get the right dosage for her cytopoint injection because she's kind of right on the border between one dose and another. So we have to kind of weigh her just before each dose. So anyway, um, I take her to the vets quite frequently and she is just really into, she's like, she's like, wow, look where I am. She's like sort of, I don't know, kid in a sweet shop or something, but except she's not, (laughs) she won't eat any food. But the sweets for her are the people and the stuff going on and everything around us. And so I'm sure I look like the world's worst dog trainer when I go to the vet, because it probably looks like me putting food on my dog's nose, which my dog completely ignores, doesn't want to have anything to do with, turns her head away from and is then completely uncontrollable because she won't um, she's not trainable in that moment because she doesn't want the reinforcer that I have. And you only have control over a dog if you have control over what is reinforcing for that dog. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. 
but I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. Anyway, let's just tell you some of the things that we've been through and tried. And actually, before I want to do that, though, let's talk about how it feels, because I think that is important to think about how it feels for the handler to have a dog which doesn't want the reinforcers that you have. So it feels to me very um, rejecting. It feels very punishing to me as the handler to try to train a dog which doesn't want the food that I have or the reinforcer that I have available to train with. It makes me feel quite powerless and um, impotent and just not very effective and a failure as a trainer in that moment. So these are not very pleasant feelings to have as a, as a handler or a trainer. And so I completely 100% am understanding now of people who have dogs like this. And I would still say that the vast majority of the time, I do think food motivation issues are down to handlers feeding too much food, feeding too much tasty free food, um, and just setting the dog up in to have the wrong attitude towards food from a young age in terms of wanting to earn it as a reinforcer. So I do think that that a lot of food motivation problems are um, kind of made by the handler rather than kind of there in the dog, as it were. But but for Ren and I'm sure for others, this is not the case. Like it's not something that we have made. It was there before I think we even got her. And so let's just tell you a little bit about um, what we've tried and what we've been through. So we would usually use Zwee Peak to train puppies with because it's easy to handle, throw around and use like kibble, but it's much healthier than kibble in that it doesn't have any carbs in it. And it's just meat and organ meat and green muscle. So it's very sort of um, natural whilst also being something that you can handle and throw about and use as easily and hygienically as kibble. So that would be my first choice. And that's what we tried, but it wasn't really effective. She wasn't very interested in it. She would check out frequently during training sessions and you know when she checked out I I tried various different things because I kind of decided to approach this in quite a sort of thoughtful way so 
if I were to pursue her and put the food on her nose and sort of say, hey, what's this? What's this? Let's try and get one more rep of whatever it is. Then we might get one or two more reps like that. But after a couple more reps, we would get to the point where I would put the food on her nose and she would turn away from it and she would say, no, thank you. That's not something I want right now. Yuck. Take it away. Um, and um, would then either leap on me and play or go off and do something else. But she didn't want the food. And so I pretty quickly learned not to do that, not to chase after her, not to be almost harassing her to come and train with me, because that is not going to be something that she finds to be enjoyable, pleasant, reinforcing. And so it's only likely to put her even more off the training process using food. So I decided that when she checked out, I would wait and I would give an opportunity to come back and re-engage with me. And if she did, then I would continue training. And if she didn't do that after a few seconds, then I would decide that she wasn't sufficiently motivated by the food at that time to train with it. So, and I would stop training with it. So that was one thing that I did. I think that was quite a good thing. Obviously it doesn't completely solve the problem. Nothing completely solves the problem, but we'll get onto that in a minute. Um, we tried using different food. So with a young puppy, there's so much training and particularly there's so much training that you want to do at home that I think it's important to try to find something which is a complete balanced food for the puppy so that you don't have to give it on top or instead of regular food. Um, so I was trying to find something. I didn't want to use just treats, for example, because that wouldn't be a balanced diet for her to have for the amount of training that we were doing. So I wanted to use a, a balanced, complete food to use. Um, so uh, after the Zwee Peak, we tried origin puppy which was kind of a reluctant thing that I tried because I don't really want to feed kibble but you know as I explained I want to feed something that I can handle and is hygienically safe and to throw around the room and that sort of thing and which is a balanced food for her but that didn't work either she wasn't very interested in that sometimes often there would be a sort of renewed amount of interest when I changed to a new food but it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't transform radically it would just be slightly better than her interest had been before and then it would quite rapidly go back again to not being very interested at all after that, I think we moved on to dehydrated raw. So I was giving her raw for her raw mints for her breakfast and she was eating that. It wasn't as enthusiastic eating as, you know, your, your typical food motivated gun dog, but she was eating it. And so I thought, okay, well, if she likes that, maybe she likes raw. So let's try and get some freeze dried raw, air dried raw, something that I can handle and throw around, which is still raw. So we tried origin freeze dried. That didn't work. We tried fresco. They make a sort of air dried food. That didn't work. Um, what else was that? I think that might have been the only two they could find. There's not very many freeze dried, air dried raw foods. So then I thought, okay, what if it's the moisture content? Because she likes her training treats more. She was sort of in and out of liking the treats that we use for training when we were away from the house. So things like um, liver and heart and kidney and um, mu muscle meat and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I thought, what if it's like the, the wet quality of the food? And yet I can't really train with... Um, a really sloppy wet food because that's just not really going to work for me. So how can I find something that is wetter? So these are the kind of thought, the kind of systematic thought process that I was going through with her. So then I discovered this range of kibble called semi-moist kibble, which I didn't even know existed, but 
there you go. So I found about three different brands of semi-moist kibble and I thought I'd give those a go. Now, she was she was more interested in the semi-moist kibble. However, eventually, you know, she did decide she didn't like it very much. Eventually, it just it just had more interest for longer than the others. And it also was not very good for her teeth because it was kind of got compacted around her teeth. And I felt that wasn't very good. It was kind of like because it was semi moist, it was like squishy. And so it gets squished into her molars. And there was one time when I stopped feeding it. And five days later, I was playing tuggy with her. And I noticed that she had all of this food still stuck around her back teeth five days later. So I thought, right, I'm not feeding semi moist kibble anymore. Apart from the fact it's also a kibble, I don't really want to feed that. So nah. So that was that. Um, at which point I then thought, all right, what about trying to find one of these sort of sausage type, you know, you've seen these sort of chubs of wet but cooked food, which so it's a complete food and it it kind of retains its shape. So you can throw it around the room and you can train with it. It's not completely squishy, mushy mess. So I thought let's try some of those. So there are various different brands of those. We tried those. I don't know if this is interesting to anyone, by the way. I'm just waffling on here about the foods we've tried. It might, this might not be interesting to anybody, but hey, this is what we've been through. So anyway, that didn't work either. Well, actually that worked a bit better again for a while. And then eventually I just felt like her interest was waning. And I think by this point, I was kind of resigning myself. I was almost at the point of being like, right, is there a point to trying to train with her anymore? Um, We would just making it through her meals before she started to lose interest by this point. So it had got a lot, had got better, I guess, since she was a little pup when we only got like two reps of anything before she wandered off, but it wasn't resolved by any means. Now, alongside all of this was her allergy issues. So she developed very red feet, which were very itchy. And the itchiness came on very suddenly. They were red for quite a long while before they were itchy. And I was really naive about this because I've never had a dog with allergies before. And I thought, oh, her feet are just pink because we've been walking through fields of pollen or something in the summer. And maybe it's just come off and it's stained her white fur on her on her feet. And they don't seem to bother her at all. So, you know, maybe it'll just go away. And <laughs> And then they just became almost overnight suddenly itchy. And I took it to the vet straight away. And the vet sort of gave us steroids and antibiotics and oh, and advocate in case it was caused by um, mange or a mite of some kind. So we treated it with the advocate. That didn't do anything. Um, the steroids worked really well. And... However, when we stopped using them, it came back again very quickly. In fact, it was only about five hours after the dose of steroids was due that the itching came back instantly. So we put it back on the steroids again and we went back to the vet. And at that point, um, she needed a, a blood test. And to cut a long story short, she was found to be very sort of allergic to house dust mites. So it's very difficult to avoid house dust mites because they're everywhere. And I think that this has been a factor for her pretty much all her life. I really do. And I think that this has been playing in to a great extent with with the sort of distractibility that she has. Because if you imagine, imagine like feeling really itchy all the time and imagine trying to concentrate on something whilst you're really, really itchy. It's just really difficult, isn't it, to stay focused on something. And so I think this is this has been playing into her sort of distractibility, her inability to focus on a task such as engaging with me in training um, for any sort of length of time. And because this has started so early on in her life, I feel like it's been 
intertwined with um it's really difficult basically to separate out um sort of nature and nurture here because this started so early on before she knew any other way of interacting with the world this this kind of itchiness um and distractibility because it was very early that her feet started to go pink so i kind of feel like it's difficult to separate out how much this is due to her allergies this distractibility and the other thing i would say is we've noticed a definite improvement so she's on cytopoint monthly now which is dealing with her symptoms and one of the first signs that she is really coming up to being overdue for cytopoint is that she loses interest in food and it doesn't want to train doesn't want to focus on us and this happens before any itchiness happens so after the cytopoint injection, about four or five hours afterwards, she's back to normal, very focused again. And so there's a definite kind of way that the allergies are playing in to her lack of food motivation. So what I would say is that if you have a dog which lacks food motivation and this is happening despite the fact you've done everything you're supposed to do, like, you know, work with them to tr help them train with their food, not overfeed them, um, use the appropriate level of um, tastiness of food in the house compared to away from the house so that you can kind of pull out the big big guns when you're around more distracting stuff and you've done all of this and it's still you're not making any progress and you feel like there's something else going on like you're not quite found the explanation for this then i would encourage you to think about you know making an appointment with your vet talking about physical um stuff going on because there are sort of gastro issues that can cause us as well Giardia can often cause like a sort of low grade nausea or, you know, lack of interest in eating, which the, may, the poo may be completely normal, but the sort of um, the, it has a sort of effect on the dog that's kind of known as well. So there are other causes, too, of course. Um, so it's always important, I think, to go and get things checked out and to think really question and look at your dog's overall life and health when you're trying to find an explanation for this. Um, anyway. I'm pleased to say that things are better, much better, but not quite normal dog better, if that makes sense. Like she's unlikely to ever be Labrador food motivated. Um, but we do, we are able to train with food and we are able to use it in most circumstances. I would say we're probably not able to use it in extremely arousing situations like around game or around um, things that that run away or that move in that sort of way that elicits that sort of predatory response in her. In those situations, we have to use the flirt pole, which is very effective because that is kind of the mode that she's in at that moment. So using food, she is just not in eating mode. She's in, I want to grab and kill mode. So it's like you have to kind of figure out what chain of the predatory sequence she's in, you know, the sort of orientate, stalk, um, point, grab, kill, whatever, hopefully not kill if you've got a gun dog, but you know, that whole sequence, eating comes at the very end of that sequence. And if she's in the sort of pointing, stalking, wanting to chase and kill part of that sequence, then that's not, the food isn't going to be something that is mo motivating for her in that moment. What will be is something that meets her where she is, which is the flirt pole. This is my sort of hypothesizing about what's going on for her anyway. But it's definitely, she's very complicated difficult dog to figure out how to motivate and how to work with but that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as i feel like we're making progress because it's been quite interesting actually um and i've learned quite a lot so i don't know if that is helpful to anyone but i think the thing to say the main point to say is that 
if your dog lacks food motivation and is one of these dogs that lacks food motivation, it's probably going to be apparent quite early. It's going to be a trait. It's going to be something you've noticed about the dog from the start. And I think my recommendation would be try and figure out where your dog is at when it comes to food. Try different foods. Try to use food in creative ways. Try to work through things in quite a logical, thoughtful way. So, you know, like the way that I thought. So she eats raw food. Can we use dehydrated raw to train? That didn't work. Then I thought she eats raw food. What's another property of the raw food that she likes, which isn't the fact that it's raw? Well, it's wet. So maybe she likes wet foods, more moist foods. Can we can we work with that? And we did make considerable progress at that point to the point we were actually able to train with her, which hadn't been possible before. So, and then the other thing to say is that if you do have one of these kind of chronic cases of you know, real lack of interest in food to the point that you're worried about, is the dog actually eating enough? Then I think to think about, is there something physical going on? Some other, is there something going on for the dog in some other way that we haven't noticed? Are there any other symptoms or is there anything else um, that we can, you know, think about? And is it worth having a chat with the vet to see if they have any ideas about why the dog is sort of chronically not interested in food? So that would be my sort of approach to that. Now, the thing I have to say now is quite ironic because what I used to train Ren now is Zooey Peak. So it's like we've come full circle. We're right back at the beginning and she is interested in working for this Zooey Peak. So I do feel like persevering with this through the whole year. Um, and by the way, I mean that at home, she's interested in working for the Zooey Peak. I don't think she would be interested in working for it out and about around distractions. Another tip, which is quite important, is that you try to figure out if your dog can be helped to be more interested in toys and balls and tug. And if you can work with any of those motivators, because that will give you something that you can be using if your dog is not interested in food. So for Ren, it's been fantastic that she is very into tug and she's very into her flirt pole. And that has given us so much as far as um, something to train with goes. Obviously, there's a limit to the behaviors that you can train with tugs, flirt poles, balls. You can't train like subtle and precise behaviors. And they tend to be behaviors that involve quite a lot of movement when you reinforce, which isn't always suitable. Um, so you have to kind of keep all of that in mind, but it's way better than nothing. So I'd really encourage you to be building your puppy's interest in the tug or flirt pole so that you've got that to use. I hope that helps people who are having similar issues around food motivation. It gives you some sort of thoughts. And the other thing that I would encourage you to do is to dwell on how it makes you feel to be working with a dog like this, to be working with a dog that, you know, you're standing there with a treat pouch full of sausages and your dog is like, no, I don't want those. Thanks. I want to go off and do something else. Because I think if you can think about how it makes you feel, then that will help you account for your part in this. Because, you know, are you getting frustrated because your dog doesn't want the food? Is that frustration coming out in the way that you interact with the dog? Are you feeling rejected and hurt and sort of giving up? Is that sort of how you are responding to, to your feelings about the dog not wanting to train with you? So I always think in the training process, I want to encourage you to think about how how you feel, how the situation is making you feel so that you can take that into account as well when you continue to work with the dog and move forward. Um, so anyway, I just want to say finally that it's really a tough situation if you do have a dog which isn't interested in food and you completely have my sympathy. So I just thought I'd put that out there too. So anyway, that is all for this episode of Hold the Line. Hold the line.
Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the